attention to the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. Isaiah 63. We will read the first nine verses of Isaiah 63. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thine garments like him that treadeth the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord, and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies, and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Now the first few verses of this text describes the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of his chosen ones. How he purchased their redemption completely by himself. He said, I have trodden the winepress alone. There was none to help him. Then in verse 6 we read, And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. But in verse 7, this blessed verse 7, we begin to read of hope. It says, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. That's that's what I've entitled this message, the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Of the Lord. Where do we even begin when we start to consider the goodness of God toward undeserving sinners? Those who at one time despised the very mention of the name of God. Those who were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Those whose very mind was enmity toward God Almighty. Those who were the children of wrath even as others. Those who, like dumb sheep, had wandered away 
and we're on a sure path to destruction. Those who cried in their hearts, we will not have this man rule over us. Those who not only dwelt in sin, but relished every single minute of it. Who took delight in cursing and bitterness. Those of us who seemed to be in competition with one another to see who could be the most vile. Those who gloried in their depravity and wore it like a badge of honor. And those who took pleasure not only in defiling themselves, but leading others down the path of destruction. Those who not only took pleasure in debauchery, but enjoyed the hearing and telling of the vile deeds of others. But also those who stood proud in their own supposed righteousness, looking down on others who did not in their mind measure up to their standard of goodness and godliness. But before we look at how good our God had been to us, before grace come to us and brought salvation, I want to look at where we were when our Lord found us. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Before we can really rejoice in the loving kindnesses of our God, I think we need to be reminded of where we were when He found us. Starting in verse 10, Romans 3. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. This speaks of the group that I just mentioned who believed that in and of themselves they had a righteousness which they could possess and present to God and be accepted by Him. But Isaiah fifty-seven twelve tells us, I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. There's no merit, no value whatsoever in our supposed righteousness. There's no profit in our so-called good works. Verse 11 of Romans 3, There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. The Scriptures ask the question, Who hath known the mind of God, or who hath been his counselor? Now the puny mind of a mortal man can never understand anything about the mind of the infinite God in this universe unless... It is given to him of God to understand those things. Now he makes that clear, Bill just read, that his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. There is none that seeketh after God. Now men will seek after their idea of God, of a God that they can bend to their will and manipulate. But because the true God is completely incomprehensible to the carnal mind, there is none that seek after Him. But after the Spirit comes and gives us saving faith, 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us how things change. It says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? And then Paul writes, but we have the mind of Christ. 
And after we're given faith in Christ, we begin to understand the things of God, spiritual things. We're given a heart that seeks after God. David wrote in Psalm 42, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. Verse 12 of Romans 3, They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. For there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Proverbs tells us that there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Man's idea of salvation has just the exact opposite effect of what he thinks it has. It does not lead to life. It leads to eternal death. They are together become unprofitable. The entire human race is counted as nothing when it comes to supplying any righteousness that God will accept because there is none that doeth good, we're told. No, not one. Verse 13 of Romans 3 says, Their throat is an open sepulcher. This refers to what our Lord taught His disciples about the things that come forth from a man or the things that defile a man. Now you can imagine an Oakland sepulcher would allow the stench of those rotting bodies to escape and turn the stomach of anyone who passed by, which is a good description of the things that come out of the heart of natural man. Our Lord taught us that all the evil which comes out of a man proceedeth from the heart. Then this verse 13 tells us, With their tongues they have used deceit. Now James described this well when he wrote, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, so that is the tongue among all our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. And he also wrote, But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison, which this verse 13 tells us that the poison of asps is under our lips. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Our mouths that should be used to praise God for His faithfulness. David wrote for His faithfulness to all generations. But sadly, before we come to know the Lord, we do not praise His name, but rather curse it. When I look back at the times, before our Lord gave me saving faith, I blush at the things that came out of my mouth, those things that originated from an unregenerate, wicked heart. And sadly, because that old man and that old heart still dwells in this flesh, I too many times speak words that I ought not. James tells us that no man can tame this vile tongue. And in verse 15, it says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. The history of mankind is clearly a history of violence and bloodshed. There's been war after war fought over land and riches and trivial things that mean nothing in the light of eternity. But natural man does not look at things in the light of eternity, only in the here and now. And further, history shows that much of the blood that had been shed was the blood of martyrs and saints. 
killed because they did not believe what those in power believed. They were willing to die rather than give up that pearl of great price that we're told is worth sacrificing all that we have. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their ways. Mm -mm. What a perfect description of my life. Before our gracious God stepped into my path and stopped me on my mad dash to hell, it says destruction is in their way. This word destruction means to end something by causing so much damage that it cannot be repaired or it no longer exists. I was well on my way to making that happen. I ran willingly toward destruction, living a life that would have in the end completely annihilated my existence, both body and soul. Misery was a state in which I lived for years, a state of unhappiness and wretchedness, trying to fill the void in my soul with every imaginable vice, partying with friends who were just as miserable as I, but none of us were willing to admit it. Hearing of people that I knew dying of drug overdoses, but confident that I was too smart to let that happen. But in the back of my mind, knowing that it could. My conscience was so seared that I had no thought whatsoever to the God that I was offending. Living with my fish shoved in God's face and caring nothing for the consequences. Verse 17 tells us, And the way of peace have they not known. Peace is described as a state of tranquility or quiet. Freedom from disquieting thoughts or emotion, which was was just the opposite of how I felt, living in a state of constant turmoil, unable to find any solace in any of those vices in which I so willingly engaged myself. No peace of conscience, no peace of soul. And verse 18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now even though I had been raised in a Baptist church and knew the things that I was doing were wrong, my conscience at that time was so seared I couldn't have cared less. There was no fear of punishment or retribution one thought and one heartbeat away from an eternity of eternal damnation. And I went on my merry way, not caring. My eyes were too fixed on pursuing evil to give any thought to the God of this universe. So we have seen our condition before our God did a work of grace in our hearts, before He bestowed His loving kindnesses upon us. The scriptures have much to say about the kindness of our God toward vile sinners. In Titus chapter 3 we read this, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But, But after the kindness and love of our God and our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, 
which he shed on us abundantly through our Lord Jesus Christ. This seventh verse of Isaiah speaks of the mercies of God and the multitude of his loving kindness. Now our God is not a miser. He doesn't divvy out things a little at a time. The scriptures speak numerous times of his abundance of goodness, his exceeding greatness. And he's able to do this because he's rich, exceeding rich, ridiculously rich in mercy, in grace, in wisdom, in glory, in forbearance, in goodness, in long suffering. And he bestows on those riches on whom he will and withholds them from some. He told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And Paul tells us in Romans 9, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now he hardens the hearts of men as he did to Pharaoh, so that it is impossible for them to hear and believe the gospel. And it's his sovereign right to do so. The God of this universe does that which is right. And the religious world hates that truth. The truth that God bestows mercy on some and withholds it from others. But they can despise it all they want. It is nevertheless true. Men like to think that they're masters of their own fate. That they're going to get right with God. Or they're going to get their spiritual life in order when they decide to. But the truth is, there is nothing that you can do to get your spiritual life in order. The choice is not yours, but God's. Now you can reform your life in such a way that men and women will marvel at the change that has taken place. And that's commendable. But don't ever fool yourself into believing that a change of behavior has any merit, any standing before a holy God. Only when the Spirit gives life in the soul of a sinner is there a meaningful change that takes place because you're given a new heart, a heart that loves righteousness and hates sin. Then in verse 8 of our text here in Isaiah 63, we read, For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie, we are His people because He chose us in eternity past to be His people. Not because of any choice on our part. Surely they are my people. Not surely they will be my people if they make the right decisions. But surely they are my people. His people from eternity past. But we also read children that will not lie. But the Scriptures tell us that we come forth from the womb speaking lies. So how do we reconcile this? Paul describes it in Colossians 6.11. It says, now he says, after listing those things or those folks that would not inherit the kingdom of God, he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. This is how we can be described as children 
that will not lie. It's talking about that new man, that new heart that is given to us that cannot sin and cannot lie. But sadly, that new man still shares his space with that old man who is nothing but sin and can do nothing but lie, constantly warring against the new man. Then the last words of this verse 8 states, So He was their Savior. When the Spirit brings that new heart, that heart is more than happy to claim Christ as the one and only Savior of sinners. We have no other hope. (coughs) We need no other hope. He is all-sufficient, we're told, providing everything that we need to stand justified before a thrice-holy God, perfect in righteousness. So He was their Savior, it says. Before time began, He was, always has been, our Savior. Not they will be, or I will be their Savior if they make the right choices, but He was and always will be their Savior. Now, lastly, we read in verse 9, of our text here in Isaiah 63. Verse 9 says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Psalm 106. Turn there with me over to Psalm 106. I want to read a few verses. It speaks of the goodness of our God toward the nation of Israel. But it can certainly be applied to how the Lord deals with His redeemed. Psalm 106, starting in verse 42. Their enemies also opposed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Before we were given faith in Christ, we were in subjection to sin and to Satan, under the bondage of misery, all our lives, subject to the fear of death, as described in Hebrews 2.15. Then in verse 43 we read, Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel, and were brought low for their iniquity. Now we will never know in this life the untold multitude of times that God's prevenient grace kept us from death, from eternal ruin. We did not see the hand of God in our lives, but as they say, hindsight is twenty-twenty. And looking back over my life before I was brought to a knowledge of Christ, I tremble. At the times that I know of, much less the times that I don't know of, that my life was spared. But God delivered me from them all. But through all those times in my unbelief, every hour, I live still provoking God. And this verse tells us that as a result of that, of our sin, we were brought low in our iniquity, brought to a place of utter despair over our lost condition when we began to be awakened to the fact that we had offended a holy God. But thank God the next verse here tells us, Nevertheless, 
He regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. Our God is so good. When God begins to bring one of his chosen ones to the place of repentance, he gives them a heart to cry out for mercy. Whereas that publican who smote his breast, knowing he had nothing to recommend himself to God, and said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And in verse 45 of this psalm, says, And he remembered them, or he remembered for them his covenant, and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. This new covenant made with the spiritual house of Israel, God's elect people, spoken of in Hebrews. Now going back to our text in Isaiah 63. Verse 9 says, In all their affliction, He, speaking of our Savior, was afflicted. This is described so well in that familiar text of Isaiah 53. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Our afflictions became His afflictions as He bore the punishment that was due our sins. He carried our sorrows so that we would never know the unimaginable sorrows borne by the damned in hell. And in the same way that our afflictions became His afflictions, His righteousness now becomes our righteousness. Blessed, blessed substitution. And then in verse 9 we read, And the angel of His presence save them. Now from the moment that one of God's elect are conceived in the womb, they're overseen by guardian angels, preserved until the time of love, until the time that the Spirit of Christ brings them a new heart to believe on Him who's altogether lovely. David said in Psalm 9.3, When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. And in Psalm 91 we read, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Preserved from those things that would have destroyed us before our Lord granted us salvation. And this very text was quoted by Satan himself in Luke 4.10 when he brought the Lord to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and tempted him to cast himself down. And we're told in Psalm 103 that the angels of God excel in strength and do God's commandments. Now God doesn't send someone to watch over His elect who are not able to carry out that task. He sends angels who are exceedingly strong and more than able to keep us from harm both before and after we come to faith in Christ. But as strong as angels are, both the angels of God and those fallen angels, they are not strong enough to ever override the purpose and the will of God when it comes to the saved sinner ever falling from grace. Paul told us this in Romans when he said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So powerful is the saving grace and blood of Christ that it is impossible for any sinner that has been saved to ever be lost again. There is no force in this universe that can make that happen. Then further in verse 9, it goes on to say, In His love and in His pity, He redeemed them. This word pity means sympathy and sorrow arise by the misfortune and suffering of another. Because our God loves His people with an everlasting love, He redeemed us with the blood of His precious Son. Psalm 103.13 says, Like as a father, father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. But we need to remember, we need to always remember that because God the Father chose to take pity on His elect people, there was no pity, no mercy to be had for His Son when our sins were found upon Him. God's justice is not overridden by His love and mercy. Sin must be paid for. And that payment for our sins was made by our Savior. Psalm 69.20 tells us much the same. Speaking of Christ our Lord, He says, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there were none. And for comforters, but I found none. Our blessed Lord died alone, forsaken even of the Father, with whom he had dwelt in perfect union for untold billions of millennia. Ezekiel 5.11 describes the attitude toward God that God has toward those that sin against him. And it's a good description of how God dealt with his son when he was made sin for us. It says, Wherefore as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because thou hast defiled my sanctuary with all thy detestable things and with all thine abominations, therefore will I also dismiss thee, neither shall mine eye spare, neither will I have pity. There was no mercy to be shown the Savior when he was made sin for us. God took no pity on his son as he hung on that Roman tree because by imputation he deserved every bit of the wrath that God poured out upon him, poured out without measure. The scripture tell us that God is angry with the wicked every day. And I'm sure that God has never been more angry and he was in those three hours that he poured out his wrath on his blessed son because there has never been such a concentrated amount of sin punished at one time as there was when Christ took upon himself the iniquity of us all. Ezekiel 7.9 gives us a similar description of how God the Father viewed his son when he hung between heaven and earth, paying that awful price. It says, And mine eyes shall not spare neither will I have pity. 
I will recompense thee according to thy ways and thine abominations that are in the midst of thee. And ye shall know that I am the Lord that smiteth thee. Our Lord Jesus Christ knew who it was pouring out his wrath upon him, which is why he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And verse 9 goes on to tell us more of what God did for us when it says he not only took pity, but he bare them. Speaking of his people, I've already quoted verse 10 and 11 of Psalm 91, but let me read verse 12. It says, Speaking of the angels of God, they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. The protective hand of our God is carried out using his angels, watching over us every minute of our lives. And then verse 9 says, And he carried them all the days of old. Like that good shepherd that we read of who picks up that lost sheep, and carries it on his shoulders. So our Savior carried us by his good providence all the days of our sojourn here, both before and after we came to faith in Christ. But this verse means even more than that. When it says that our God carried us all the days of old, it is speaking of Christ carrying us in his heart. We've been in Christ from eternity past, from, as this verse says, from the days of old. Unimaginable hundreds of trillions of years ago, back to time immeasurable, we have been in Christ, carried in His heart. There's never been a time that we were put in Christ. We have always been in Christ. We love to talk of God's provenient grace in our lives, and it's certainly worth rejoicing over. But we need to understand that God's provenient grace in our lives began with Adam. God had to preserve everyone in our family tree. Think about this. From Adam till now, God had to preserve everyone that we call our ancestors in order for us to be born. Now, if one person out of that family tree had been removed, none of us would be sitting here today. Hundreds of trillions of circumstances that had to occur or be kept from occurring so that we would be in this place today worshiping our Lord and be made an object of God's free and sovereign grace. God has directed all things for our good and His glory from the days of old. So let me conclude with a word of those sitting here, or will sometimes hear this in the future. You've heard of the loving kindness of the God that we worship, of His goodness, of His mercy, of His grace toward His chosen. But the scriptures also speak of another side of this God. That he is angry with the wicked every day. That he will by no means clear the guilty. You need to understand that this God whom we worship is a God that you've offended by your life and your sins since you were born. 
And outside of Christ, there's nothing but judgment and wrath. But there's hope for you, lost man or woman. Every one of us sitting here today that know the Lord and become vessels of His mercy were once as you are, without faith and without the ability to believe. But God, in His grace, did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. He gave us faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us are better than you. None of us are smarter than you. None of us made better choices than you. And once you're given that faith to believe, you will find yourself believing on Christ. But there's nothing that you can do to recommend yourself to God. But there are some things that you can do to put yourself in a position where maybe, just maybe, this God of all grace will show you mercy. First, you can put yourself under the hearing of the gospel of Christ crucified. The scriptures tell us that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, that preached word of God, the hearing of how Christ died for sinners. Number two, you can read the Scriptures and seek the Lord in those holy, inspired pages. And number three, you can plead with God to show you mercy. You can be as that publican who cried out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, none of these things will guarantee your salvation, but it is certain that you will not come to know Christ without doing them. God's Word tells us, seek and ye shall find. May God grant you the grace to seek Him with all your heart while He may be found. Bill, come lead us in a song.